So as, uh, as we think about worshiping the holy name of God, I wonder what names of God come to your mind. Perhaps some that during the 40 days have really resonated with you about who God is and His character and His nature. If you were just to call out a name of God, something that is significant to you, what would that sound like? Faithful. Faithful. Protector. Protector. Redeemer. Redeemer. Forgiver. Mighty Fortress. Yeah. Provider. Almighty. Awesome. Yeah. You know there's like a thousand of them, right? So let's hear them all. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, are you familiar with the name Adonai? The name Adonai means supreme master. There's, there's none higher. So when you hear the name Adonai, it's, it's the Greek word for Lord. So when you see Lord in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, it's either Yehovah, the way the Hebrews pronounced it, or Adonai, the way it would be pronounced by people who are familiar with God's Word. In either case, it means the ultimate control, the one who is the supreme one. We're going to be looking at that Word this morning as it comes out of Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 and um, as you uh, move down there, why don't you stick your finger in Revelation chapter 4 also. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4. Um, Matt, when I jump in, I'm going to come all the way down to that second slide in Isaiah 6.1, okay, instead of starting out with those other things. Here's a question I have for you to ponder this morning. As we think of Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to get a framework on prayer. We've been working through the 40 days of prayer. We've, we've looked at how to pray specifically. We did that the very first week. We, we looked at how to have a big vision, how to be, have a God-sized vision. We looked at Daniel, how we can trust God no matter what. Uh, we looked at Nicodemus last week with John. Uh, John writing in chapter 3 about Jesus coming to him at night and very specifically how God gives us opportunity and we're supposed to seize those opportunities. But what about this question? On the heaven side, what happens to your prayers? Where do your prayers go when you pray? And in every service so far, I've had individuals talk to me and say, I'd never stopped to think about it before. What happens to your prayers when you pray? Now here on earth, when we talk to each other, we understand there's sound waves that carry the words just like you're hearing my words right now. Go on the auditory wavelength. Our auditory canal picks it up in our ears, translated to the eardrum. It sends a signal to the brain. We get that on a physical level. But what happens to your prayers in heaven? I think it's really significant to understand it because the 40 days are about to come to an end. There's this week and next week, and that's it. But our prayers don't stop, right? Just because the 40 days are over, we want to continue to be persistent. Well, understanding what happens on the other end is pretty significant because I think as you look at this passage this morning, perhaps through a completely new lens, you're going to see the purpose in being persistent in prayer because of what God does on the other end when your prayers are heard by Him. Because how I view God really determines the actions I take, right? 
So let's go to Isaiah 6.1. This is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Uh, Uzziah is an earthly king. He ruled over Judah. Um, he died, we're told, somewhere around 749 B.C. He ruled 52 years. Uh, this is a guy who all of his life had honored God, but at the end of his life, he got a little carried away with himself, a little pompous and proud, and he walked into the temple, not a priest, and God struck him with leprosy because he had disregarded God's commandments. And so he died with leprosy, died a horrible death, and this is the year that Isaiah is talking about. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw God. So he literally saying, we lost our sovereign. We lost our earthly ruler. But God, I saw Him on His throne. God is still in perfect control. So when we say that Isaiah saw God, we have to ask ourselves this question, who did he see? Did he see God the Father? Or did he see Jesus Christ, the Lord? Now this word Lord specifically means, as we talked about, Adonai. And Adonai means Supreme Lord and Master. The One who rules. The One who reigns. Well, we understand from John chapter 12 that this is really cleared up for us. If you look with me on the screen, you'll see that in the New Testament, when Jesus was talking to the disciples, in chapter 12, there's this explanation about what Isaiah saw. It says this, these things Isaiah said because he saw Him, because he saw His glory, and he spoke of Him. You know who the Him is? It's the pre-incarnate Christ. So when Isaiah looked upon the throne, what you're about to see is this vision of Jesus as a ruler, the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, very specifically, there's some things that are going to pop out to you in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning about what God looks like and the surroundings around His throne. First of all, I want you to see this passage from 1 Timothy 6.15. It says this, "...the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see." In other words, looking upon God in His full glory is not possible for man. So when you look at Isaiah 6, you don't see Isaiah giving a description of God's eyes or His nose or His mouth. He doesn't do that. What he describes is the surroundings. Everything that surrounds the throne. So what's the setting? Well, first of all, we're told he's sitting on this really, really high throne. He's high and lifted up. Meaning at the, the top of these monster steps, this staircase is God high and lifted up. Now, Revelation chapter 4, the reason I had you put your finger there this morning is we're going to get into it in just a minute, just briefly. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Look at Revelation chapter 4 later today yourself. Why? Because it is a perfect description of the throne of God. It gives details of what the throne looks like. But it's not just kept with John. Daniel saw it as well. So did Ezekiel. They each got a glimpse from a different angle of what God's throne in heaven looks like and the surroundings. Here's just a glimpse for you. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. This is why I want to get into the book of Daniel after Christmas with you. Daniel chapter 7 says this, I kept looking, this is Daniel speaking, until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was blazed with flames, and its wheels were burning 
were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. So at the top of these steps, we've got this throne that Isaiah says is high and lifted up, and it's of enormous size. And then we're told, according to Isaiah, that there's something else there that's present. He says the train of his robe fills the whole temple. Now, the robe that flows behind a king is something that the king always wanted to wear when he was carrying out judicial responsibility. Or sometimes when a king would go for a walk out in public, he would put his robe on and he would have a series of young men walk behind him called pages. So don't think of like piece of paper pages, but pages like young individual, okay? And if a king was a really big deal, I mean really, really powerful, he would have five pages behind him because his robe was so long and it flowed out so far that he would have two young men on one side and two young men on another side and one in the very back so that it wouldn't hang in the mud and everyone knew that the king was coming how many pages would it take to lift up the robe of god which fills the entire temple the throne that sits atop the staircase of heaven and his robe spilled over down the steps into the throne room. David gives us some insight. David says that God is clothed in splendor and majesty. In Psalm 104.1 it says this, O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He doesn't give us details. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah's case, he leaves more unsaid than said. But this mystery is so otherworldly, it's really difficult for him to explain. I'm working through this and trying to get my mind around it and my my thought process went back to when I was 24 years old and I was at the Grand Canyon. And um, five of us were together and decided we're just going to go in opposite directions, all, all five guys. And I just wanted some alone time. So they went in opposite directions for some alone time as well. And I found this really remote outcropping that I'd walked quite a ways to get to. And when I found it, I knew it was the right place because I had my Bible with me and I just wanted to sit down and just look at God's Word while I'm in the midst of this awesome place. So without my wife knowing, because I've never told her this before, if she was there, she would have yelled at me. I got out on the edge of a precipice, and I looked, and it's 900 feet straight down. Now you're wondering why I did that, because young men do things like that. Um, It was that sense of awe. I appreciate what Isaiah is trying to describe here because what he's done is he's come right to the very edge beyond where man is even supposed to be, beyond what is safe. He's in the throne room of God. God has allowed him to be there and he knows he's in this place beyond what's allowed. And the picture for him strikes awe and terror into his heart. All these descriptions that you've seen so far and that you're about to see reaffirm for us one thing, church. Our God is high and He's lifted up and He's holy and He's deserving of our praise. So Isaiah goes to verse 2 and he says this, Above Him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face and with two He covered His feet and with two He flew. R.C. Sproul gives this wonderful insight that I give credit to him for. I was looking through his material earlier this week, and he noted this, that when God creates creatures, He does so so that they're suitable for their environment. 
So when he creates birds, he creates them with a very light framework of a skeleton and feathers so that they can fly through their environment. They're very suitable for that environment. When he created fish, he creates them suitable for their environment so they can dwell in the habitat they were made to be in. He created you suitable for your environment. The seraphim are created by God suitable for this environment. And what their environment is, is the immediate presence of God the Father. So let's look at this word seraphim. I want you to see it on the screen because it has a very specific meaning, yet very short. It just says the burning ones. Now this is a plural word. Seraph is one, one angel. Seraphim is plural, means multiple So what he's seeing here is multiple seraphim who have this burning image to them. A burning, fiery, gliding being because he said they have six wings. Now according to the order of angels, we understand that there's certain rankings. There's the the messenger angels that go out and do God's work. And then there's also the cherubim who surround God's throne. And then there's the seraphim. And in these seraphim, they hover apparently above the throne We're told that they have two wings by which they cover their face. Anybody happen to know why? Why do they cover their eyes? All right, not to look upon God. These ones who are so perfect themselves, but yet they can't look upon God lest they be destroyed. And two, they cover their feet. Why? Because they stand in the presence of God. And they recognize themselves as just these individuals who are filled with profound wonder that God created for this place. But they still have to cover their feet. And with two wings, they fly. Moving to and fro, Ezekiel actually says, if you read Ezekiel later today, you'll see that when he said that they flew, he heard the sound of a rushing tumult. Their wings were so big that they sounded like rushing water. Thunder just by the flap of their wings. This is Ezekiel's description here in verse, chapter 1, verse 13. It says they're like burning coals of fire or like torches. In 749 B.C., you've never seen brilliant light, halogen lights. You've only seen campfires. I can envision what Ezekiel's talking about. I sat around campfires. They're like the glowing orange embers at the base of a fire pit. That's the, he's struggling with words. You see the word like repeated twice there. They're kind of like this. They're kind of like torches. But here's the most important thing. As awesome as their appearance is, the most important thing is not their appearance. It's what's coming next. The profound, profound declaration that they make. Look with me at verse 3. And it says this, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now these beings who are created perfect, who are not fallen as Lucifer is, these are not the fallen angels. They're blameless. They're spotless. These ones who are perfect don't talk about themselves. They don't say, hey, look at us. We're glowing orange. They're talking about God and His appearance and who He is. And so they cry out, holy, holy, holy. And you notice in the very first sentence, what they're doing is they're thundering out the nature and the name and the power of God and His character. And so we're told next, what they do is they call one to another. I don't know if you know what antiphonal language is, 
but antiphonal language means an echoed word. You hear it in the United States Air Force. When the United States Air Force trumpeting team gets together, and occasionally at presidential events, you'll see a row of trumpeters up in one balcony and a row of trumpeters up in another balcony. And, and the first group lets loose, and the second group repeats the exact same thing. It's antiphonal language. When he says one called out to another, what we have are the seraphims speaking to each other. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. It keeps going back and forth. That's the presence that Isaiah feels in this room. In the presence of God. This alternating responsive sequence back and forth in the presence of everyone gathered in heaven. Now in the Hebrew language, holy means separated. In the Greek language, it's hagios. means unapproachable. What Isaiah's hearing in his native tongue is unapproachable, unapproachable, unapproachable. Separate, separate, separate. Holy, holy, holy. Now before we get into the meaning of this too much and why it's used that way, understand this phrase, Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, uh, the gospel according to Mark Kring, this is what it says. God's got the firepower of heaven. Okay, The Lord of hosts means He's the commander of the angels of heaven. He's commander of the army of heaven. But let's get into this threefold repetition. Holy, holy, holy. It's a big church word and it's known as the word is trihagion. Tri meaning three. There's a very specific way that it's used you see in the book of Revelation. Now, I had you put your finger in Revelation 4. Let me just have you flip over to that for just a minute. And you'll see it on the screen as well. But in Revelation 4, 8, speaking of this exact same setting, and, and hear me on this, when you see Revelation 4, it's a description of God's throne. But look at verse 8. It says this, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So Old Testament, holy, holy, holy. New Testament, holy, holy, holy. doesn't matter. The setting is the same. Whether in Revelation or in Isaiah, the same thing is taking place. Now, here's why I want you to get this. In the Hebrew language, when the scribes sat down to translate things of God's Word, to put it in a way that we could understand it, they used things much like we do today. They used exclamation points or places where they would put jots or tittles to emphasize certain words. It was done also in the New Testament. But if a scribe wanted to communicate something that was of utmost importance, very, very significant, he would repeat it twice. The word would be said two times. So you see this as a technique that Paul used in the New Testament. When Paul's writing to the church, he said, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the gospel that we have preached, let him be damned. And again I say, let him be damned. It's the scribal technique. Paul is using it. So last week you saw it in John chapter 3. The very intelligent attorney comes up to Jesus, Nicodemus by night. He comes to Jesus and he asks about how somebody's supposed to be saved. How does Jesus respond? Truly, truly, 
The double word repeat, meaning, we learned last week, it's the word amen, amen. It means, now hear this. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. So when it's used twice, it's something of utmost authority and significance. But in biblical language, if something is elevated to the third degree, the ultimate emphasis possible, it's repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. So is our God just holy, church? Or is He holy, holy? Or is He holy, holy, holy? And it's so magnificent that it's repeated back and forth in antiphonal language. And the setting is so overpowering. Isaiah barely knows what to do to respond in the setting because what the angels are doing is attributing to God everything that is magnificent about Him. Everything that they can possibly say is summed up in one word. He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. So for the highest of God's creation who are blameless and spotless, what do they find the greatest source of joy in? In seeing Jesus enthroned in glory. And they cry as a result of it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Now what I want you to notice next in verse 4 is that God's Word and God's nature is not just heard by the people in heaven, but it's actually felt, physically felt. Look with me at verse 4. It says this, And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. You been home when a thunderstorm hits at your house? I've been home when some pretty powerful thunderstorms come through. And I have felt the windows on my house rattle. You identify with that? You know what I'm talking about? You, you, you think, my windows are going to blow out if this storm doesn't stop. But I promise you, I have never, ever witnessed a thunderstorm that is so powerful that the foundation of my house shakes. This is the foundation of heaven, church. God built it, and the foundation of the thresholds of the door shake. Do you think that maybe Isaiah felt that one rattling in his chest? I think he knows what this experience is. So look at his response in verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an un- people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And here's what I notice. He can't join the seraphim in saying, Holy, holy, holy. He can't do it. All he can do is recognize who he is. And so he says he puts a woe on himself. Now Isaiah is the greatest prophet in all of Israel. People revere him. They just think that this guy can't do anything wrong. He's a powerful man. He's done great things for the kingdom. And he puts a woe on himself. Uh, He's not silent, but he's really struck by his own impurity, so he begins to say something about himself. Now let me explain one other technique. I told you the first one about how individuals would communicate in the ancient biblical language. Here's a second way that they would communicate. They They used what were known as oracles. Oracles with an O. And an oracle could be a blessing, or an oracle could be a curse. And so an oracle of blessing, you see a lot of those in the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks in the way of the righteous. That's an oracle of blessing. But an oracle of curse 
one that was absent of prosperity, was known as a woe. Now, Isaiah has pronounced woes on other people. This is the first time in history a prophet has ever put a woe on himself. Why? Because he openly recognizes the consequences of being a sinner in the presence of God. And he says, I'm destroyed. As a matter of fact, the, the word that's used there is, I'm disintegrated. I'm nothing. Might as well explode into powder. John Calvin, when he walked planet Earth back in the 1500s, said it's very common for you and I, when we're in the midst of our friends, to compare ourselves to each other and, and think of ourselves as more holy than we ought to because it's so much easier to find someone else who's a worse sinner than us, right? I see the nodding of the heads. You know what I'm talking about. It, it's so much easier to compare ourselves to each other and figure out, well, I'm not so bad because, you know, look at blank. But when we put ourselves in contrast to a holy God, how do we contrast ourselves at that point? This is John Kelvin's quote. I wanted you to see it. He said this, Men are never impressed with a conviction of their own insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Peter did the exact same thing with Jesus. That's why he said, depart from me, I am a sinful man. John, the same thing. That's why he collapsed in front of Jesus in the book of Revelation. So Isaiah, whatever he may have thought of himself before this moment, he's speechless in this moment. Can't say anything else. Verse 6 says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. How hot does a coal have to be for an angel to have to use a pair of tongs to pick it up? Hot? Hot, hot? Hot, hot, hot? Hot, 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 hot? White, hot? That an angel has to use a pair of tongs to pick something up off the altar? Isaiah has just confessed, I'm lost. I'm a sinful man. And he's expressed his need for deliverance. And in that moment, don't let this escape your attention. It's very subtle. In that moment, God reaches out to him. At the moment that the sinner said, I'm a sinner, look how quickly the angel is sent to comfort this guy. Charles Simeon is another one of those old dead guys that I like to read. And he lived in 1820s. This is his observation of this moment. It's pretty cool. He said, one seraph relinquishes the privilege of looking upon the one seated on the throne momentarily, surrendering the vision of God himself for the honor of executing his will as a messenger of mercy. As a child, I read this passage over and over again. Um, when my mom would send me to bed as a 10-year-old, 9 o'clock at night or whatever it was, I don't remember the time, um, I'd turn on the nightlight and I would begin reading. And I'd read till 11, 12 o'clock at night. And I kept reading throughout the Bible. And so as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13, 14, 15, I'm reading my Bible every night, two, three hours a night, just trying to get these things down to understand them. And every time I came to Isaiah 6, when I'd see this thing about the altar, I was confused. I'm trying to think, why is there an altar in heaven? There's no sacrifices in heaven. Why is there an altar before God's throne, right in the throne room? What's the purpose in that? Well, I asked you to ponder the question, what happens to your prayers when you pray? Where do they go? Let me put Revelation 8 on the screen for you. Because I came to terms with this when I was in college, and somebody showed me Revelation 8. It says this in verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer 
Did you notice this? With the prayers of all the saints. Okay, that should catch your attention. With the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Verse 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God. What happens to your prayers when you pray? In the presence of the seraphim. In the presence of the one who wears the robe that fills the entire temple. Your prayers. God, would you be with Matt Ryder today? Father, would you be with the Fowlers and the Bruce as they raise their children? Those prayers before God. Scripture says, as a fragrant aroma, rise up before Him. So why should you persist in prayer? Because your prayer comes up before God in His very throne room church. Now, to help Isaiah understand that God is purifying him and removing his shame, the the seraph takes this coal and touches the source of his sin. And this is an action of God's grace because this is not something that Isaiah did that he deserved. Look with me at verse 7. It says, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Pre-Jesus. Prior to Jesus dying on the cross, God demonstrates His grace. A sinful man in His presence standing in the throne room. And we see it's applied to the most personal area. For Isaiah, he said, my lips have caused me to be a sinner. We're told according to Scripture that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so as a man thinks, so is he. So those things that flow out from inside are just represented by our lips. So Isaiah is being purified in this moment. In the most personal place he could be purified. Because with our lips, we taste food. With our lips, we kiss. There's a lot of nerve endings in your lips. With our lips, we speak words of life or words of death. And this one has had his lips touched with something that was hot, 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 searing hot. And Isaiah did nothing to accomplish this atonement. No sacrifice. He doesn't offer God money. He doesn't say, hey, I'll be a missionary if you'll just let me stay here in your presence. None of that. This is totally the action of God because it is God alone who justifies. You can't earn what God will do for you. It's God who sanctifies And this guilt in this instant is taken away. And Isaiah now can interact with God. You know, this really illustrates for me. I just want to wrap up with you, but I I don't want you to miss this. You'll see it on the screen and it's in your notes this morning. If you grabbed one of the bulletins. This passage really illustrates for us how any of us in our life or any of our friends can identify sin. And here's how you do it. When you get a clear perspective of the holiness of God, you'll identify sin. Because you, when you contrast yourself to God, it becomes pretty evident what's going on in your life that's wrong. And just ask yourself the question, is this something that God would be doing? Next part, how everyone should respond to sin. When sin's recognized, just admit it. That's what Isaiah did. He just saw it for what it was, and he admitted it. And look at, though, at number three. How does God deal with confessed sin? The moment that Isaiah confessed it. In that instant, a seraph who was praising God left to take this coal to him. So if you're here this morning, if you're afraid and you're feeling unworthy, 
and you feel despondent like you don't measure up. You've done so much in your life that God could never forgive you. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ came for you. He came for that purpose, to bring atonement to your life, to remove the sin in your life as far as the east is from the west according to Scripture. Because according to my Bible, where your sin abounds, God said His grace much more abounds. You can't out-sin because God is the God of grace and He will forgive. Let's wrap it up with verse 8. It says this, And I heard the voice of the Lord. (laughs) What would you give to hear that? I'd give everything. If you could hear the voice of God being uttered from His throne. Isaiah has heard the seraphim. He's watched the walls shake and shudder. He's seen a burning hot coal brought to him. He's probably even heard the sear of his lips. But now he hears the voice of God. The voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Or who or who and who will go for us? Do you think God was taking a poll? Or he was hoping that someone would sign up? Or is this the God of opportunity? It's the God of opportunity. You have to say, why did he ask this question? It's so that Isaiah would have the opportunity to respond because the God of opportunity has presented an opportunity before someone who's been redeemed, someone who's had their iniquity taken away. And so he presents the question. And what effect does it instantly produce in Isaiah? Instantly, no delay. He's not looking for a more opportune time. He's saying, me, I'll go. Look at the passage. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. You notice there's no reservation. There's no retreat. And by the way, when he's signing up for this, he's going back to Israel, which was a place that really didn't like to hear the things about God that Isaiah had to say. But now he's a man who's been forgiven. And he knows what it is to be forgiven. And he's about to go to a people who need to hear it themselves. And he's going to communicate God's word. So he says, me, send me, me, I'll go. Here's what's remarkable to me. He didn't ask God, you know, could I like go to the Bahamas? That'd be a great place for an assignment. Or is my standing in the world going to improve because you do this with me, you know? There's no negotiating. He just instantly responds, me, I'll go. But here's why I really wanted to take you to this passage. I see something that I've never seen before. And I've read this since I was seven, eight years old. The first time it ever popped out to me. In this moment, a human voice is uttered in the presence of God, in the throne room of God. Not just any human voice, one who has been redeemed by the King Himself. He's free to interact with God. What was a moment ago, an individual who said, I am undone, I am destroyed, I am disintegrated, is now in the cheering section saying, hey, me, I'll go. He feels the freedom to talk to the God who's on the throne with the robe spilling over the edge. It's amazing to me. Because this is what it tells me that even when the 40 days prayer end and maybe 3 o'clock in the afternoon comes around and you kick yourself because you forgot to pray like maybe you've done over the last couple weeks, 
whenever you get on your knees, whenever you utter a word, God hears you because you're the redeemed of the Lord. Your sins have been atoned for if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in Him. So look at God's answer. One word, verse 9 says, and He said, go. Just go. I don't know what you envision when you think of God's government, when you think of God sitting on His throne, if you think of Him as the judge. Whenever you think of God's throne room, don't think of a democracy. It's not a democracy. There's no Republicans. There's no Democrats. I'm waiting for the amens. Okay. It's not a political environment. There's no voting God on or God off His throne. He's God and He's on His throne. There's no government in the way that we think of it. And the throne is not a folding chair. It's not a portable throne. There's not a change of rulers. That's why Isaiah said, in the year that there was a change of rulers on earth, when Uzziah died, I saw God, and he's still on his throne. It's true today, church. God is still on his throne. So before we finish, let it be known, the throne is set, and it's fixed, and it's immovable, and God is on his throne. So I end with Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, just as a reminder, it says this, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. It's a really pretty thing in the Greek language because when it says who is to come, it says who is coming. It's a promise. The one who is, who was, and who is coming. Do you agree with that statement? God said it, so it's true. Let's pray, church. Father, I thank you for these men and women and students who are gathered before you right now. None of us have escaped your attention. Regardless of what we've occupied ourselves with during the service, regardless of the things that we were thinking or the things that we'll be doing later today, none of us have escaped your attention. You tell us that you have the eyes that see everything. And it's almost beyond my comprehension that we can even speak to you. Father, perhaps because we've done this, many of us, most of our life, we treat it as such a simple thing. When I read your word, I see that the prophets of old are broken just for the privilege of uttering your name. We come before you as a group of people who recognize that you hear us in this moment. And that the prayers that we uttered yesterday and that we will utter tomorrow and the things that we will say today, even in this moment, are coming up before you right now as a fragrant aroma. So Father, with that aroma, we declare with the angels, you are holy, holy, holy. And you are mercy, mercy, mercy. And you are grace, grace, grace. 
because of what you did through Jesus Christ, we know your grace. Thank you, Father, for being patient with us. I pray for our church right now that as we continue in prayer throughout the weeks ahead of us and the months ahead of us, that you will remind us we're not speaking to any earthly monarch, but we're speaking to the King of the universe. And our prayers do ascend right in the presence of your throne room. Thank you, Father, for this strong reminder. Thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ that we come before you as those who know what it is to be justified. It's in the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords that we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.